If we could open our Bibles tonight to 1 Chronicles chapter 21. I'm going to look at the life of David. Last week we were looking at chapter 20 and it was just a continuation really of what David, what is recorded here of David's battles. Um, as he became king, as his administration became firm and established, uh, David still had many uh, enemies to defeat and to, to go to battle against. And one of them was, uh, you know, the Ammonites and the Syrians and certainly the, the, the Philistines. And if you remember, last week we looked at these Philistines. They're a very unique uh, group of people. They are, um, as we saw last week, they are non-Semitic people that really came from the island of Crete. And remember, they settled down, uh, they tried to go down into uh, Egypt, and the king of Egypt, I think it was Ramesses III, uh, kicked them out of Egypt. And so the Philistines, these seafaring people, just continued to go up to the coastline, and they settled in the center of what you and I would call modern-day Israel. Back then it was called the land of Canaan. And so they settled in, uh, in that land, and for hundreds of years, they, they just became a nuisance to the children of Israel. And uh, we looked at the, um, some of the most famous Philistines, and one of them was Goliath, and we looked at Goliath and his brothers, and we looked at sort of like a proposed genealogy of these uh, giants that were in the land. And Goliath was one of those born to a uh, a giant who had a name of renown. His name was Rapha. And we looked at the kind of like, a, again, a proposed genealogy and of these giants. And, and where did they come from? How did they come to be? And, and as we look through the scripture, remember last week, we followed that all the way back to Genesis 6, where we found out that the, the, the descendants or excuse me, the ancestors of these giants were the Nephilim, these fallen ones. And we looked at the spooky things that they were involved in in Genesis 6. So these uh, men who were either possessed uh, by demons or demons themselves that had manifested themselves in human form and interbred with human women and gave race or uh, uh, birth to this race of giants called the Anakim, or the, Ana, uh, the Anakim and, and there's many um, different names that these giants had by different peoples. But we looked at that, and that was quite disturbing, if you recall, going through that last week. And so tonight we're going to be... Now, between chapters 20 and chapter 21, uh, in our Bibles, it just the, the chapter goes on, doesn't it? But one thing we have to realize, and is true of the Bible itself, is much of the time, sometimes between verses and sometimes between chapters, there is a significant amount of time that took place. And, um, and, and in this instance, there were 20 years uh, that went by between the events of chapter 20 to the events that we're going to be looking at tonight. So David is already firmly established in his kingdom. His sin with Bathsheba had already taken place earlier, and his murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite, remember? And so David was already stinging with the consequences of the sin that he engaged himself in. And then, you know, Nathan the prophet tells him, you know, because of these things, David, you've given great occasion to the enemy to blaspheme the name of God. And not only that, but the sword will not depart from your house. So David is now embroiled in this uh, infighting in his own family people in his own family uh, committing incest and then one killing the other. And, and we looked at that. And remember, as we went through First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, and now we are in First Chronicles, and it was just a horrible thing that had happened in David's life. And so now he's, he's, he's still feeling the effects of this, the repercussions of his disobedience, of his sin. And now we come to one of these areas in the Scripture and Chronicles, uh, because of the focus of the chronicler, hasn't really been exposing David like in, in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel gave all the dirty history of what happened. The chronicler, remember now, he is not really so much interested in David's faults. You know, so when, when we were looking at, uh, for instance, when we were looking at, um, uh, let's see here. Last week when we were looking at chapter 20, remember we were um, in the very first uh, 
in the very first verse, uh, the very last sentence of verse one, that right in between that second to that, that, that last sentence and this and the and the sentences preceding that, right between those, right between that was the events of Second Samuel eleven and twelve. And and it, and, it, and that was the whole situation with David and Bathsheba. But the chronicler didn't see fit to rehash that again because that was not his purpose in writing the chronicles. But tonight we're going to be looking at one of David's uh, recorded faults. But I want you to see that, again, the chronicler wasn't really excited about bringing that up. He's really wanted to focus on how did David get the land? And in order to show how David received the land of, of the, the, the Jebusite, the, the Temple Mount that you and I know today, how did he get that land? And it was through his disobedience and through one man's uh, generosity, Aruna or Ornan, the Jebusite, he, he wanted to give this land to David. And we're going to look at this, that David couldn't receive it. He wanted to pay full price. And we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about worship because both of these gentlemen uh, are just really exemplary uh, in, in, in what they were willing to give up and David's attitude toward receiving the gift when it was supposed to go to God. And, and so we've got some things to look at tonight. And so... Again, even though this is recording David's really final recorded sin in the scripture, the thrust behind the chronicler here is not to expose that again, but really show this is how David got the land. This is how David got the land. So let's look at, we're just going to read through the first 13 verses of this just to kind of get our feet wet, and then we're going to go back and get into it and then take it on through the rest of the chapter. So follow with me in verse 1 of chapter 21. It says, Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. And so David said to Joab and to the leaders of the people, Go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. And Joab answered, May the Lord make his people a hundred times more than they are. But my Lord, the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why then does my Lord require this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt in Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. And therefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. And then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to David. And all Israel had 100, 100 uh, excuse me, 1 million, 100,000 men who drew the sword, and Judah had 470,000 men who drew the sword. But he did not count Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. And God was displeased with this thing. Therefore he struck Israel. And so David said to God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. But now, I pray, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And then the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, saying, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself that I may do it to you. Move to California. Move to New York. Oh, wait, that's not in here. Those are punishments. I'm sorry. So, <laughs> sorry, Lord, I couldn't help myself. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, choose for yourself either three years of famine or three months to be defeated by your foes with the sword of your enemies overtaking you, or else for three days the sword of the Lord, the plague in the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now consider what answer I should take back to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, and I love this, I am in a great distress, David says. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. And I love this about David. You know, David had this relationship with God that he knew that um, men are not very merciful. Men are not very gracious. You know, because within man, we have this, 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 this tendency, this nature to have our pound of flesh, to, to get vengeance. And David knew this because he was a warrior. And he knew, however, that God was very gracious. Even though he deserved to have punishment upon himself, he said, I would rather fall into the hands of God, who I can trust his 
judgment. Even in his judgment, I, I, I can rest in it. Lord, whatever you have for me because of what I've done, I can accept that. And I know that you're right, and it won't be any harder than it needs to be, and it won't be any less hard than it, than it should be. And so I, I trust you even in the judgment. But David also knew God was a God of mercy, unlike men. And I love that about David. <laughs> And, and that's a really great heart to, to know. And he, he, he knew the heart of God. And, and really, isn't that why we're here tonight? We want to hear the heart of God. We want to understand the heart of God. And most of us, hopefully all of us, we have been the recipient of that grace. And we love God because we understand his love for us. He's not this angry man in the heavens who just can't wait to smash you. He's... Totally different from that. He's totally foreign to any other love that we've ever experienced, even from parents. You know, we look up to our parents, but do you realize that our parents are sinners just as much as we are? But God himself is the perfect parent. He knows exactly how much to throttle. He knows how much pain to allow or to inflict to get the point across, to get our attention, to bring us to repentance. And he doesn't do it any more than he needs to. And in that way, he's a perfect father. That's the kind of God that I love. And oftentimes, he gives me way too much rope. And sometimes, he gives me a short rope. And I just never know what's going to happen. But I know he's a God of justice. And the only reason he's allowing me not to get caught is because he's waiting for me <laughs> to repent. But there is a time, even as a child of God, where he says, okay, I... I've, given, I've extended this grace to you. Now I've got to expose this thing in your life. I can't allow you to go on because you're not being a good witness to me, of me. And you're not being any witness, frankly, to your family and friends. They know you to be a Christian. And if I don't do something, they're going to wonder, who is this God? But he is very gracious. He's slow to anger. He's plenteous in mercy, as it tells us in Exodus. He even proclaimed that. Very forgiving, very loving so let's go back to verse 1 here. Notice it says, Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to, is, uh, to number Israel. Now what's interesting is in 2 Samuel chapter 24, which is really the uh, parallel passage to this, remember what it said? And I'm just going to read it to you because it seems like there's a discrepancy here, but there really isn't. In 2 Samuel 24, verse 1, the very parallel passage of this, it says, again, the anger of Jehovah was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. So now we've got a problem, don't we? We look at that, and then we read what we just read, and it's like, well, is it God or is it Satan? The easy way to reconcile this is when we understand that both statements are true. <laughs> and they can be harmonized. And let me just first say that we have to remember what the Scripture already says about God and temptation. See, don't, don't ever throw away what you know about God already for something that might be unclear to you. Sometimes the answer is both. And in this case, it is, although it may seem to be different. In James chapter 1, verse 12, what does, it, what does it tell us? Now remember, this is Jesus' half-brother, James. He says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. Listen to this. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Did you, read, did you hear that? God cannot be tempted to do evil, and neither does he tempt any man. But does he allow an individual like Satan, who is a created being, does he allow him to do certain things? Yes, he does. Sometimes he does. And he allowed this in David's life. So it wasn't God who went to David and somehow forced him or twisted him in some way to make him do this. No, he allowed Satan to do it. Remember when Jesus said to Peter, Peter, um, I, Satan has sought to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. And when you recover, when you're converted, comfort your brethren, right? Similar kind of thing. God allowed it 
Satan was just a tool that God used. So Satan was the one who did the tempting, and God is the one who allowed it to, to bring about something, a realization in David's life and to the people of Israel. And so Satan is not a... He's not just someone who can do whatever he wants. And aren't you glad that he can't just get away with whatever he wants? He can't just go out and do whatever he wants. He has to go before the throne of God. Yes, even Satan. And we see this in, in Job, as we'll see in a few moments. But remember, God is all-powerful. And Satan can only do what God ultimately allows him to do. And so therefore, you reconcile these two passages. Yes, it was God, but ultimately he used Satan to do it. And Satan was more than happy to do it. In fact, Satan, I believe, was salivating, saying, please, let me do it. And God's like, all right. And what he doesn't tell Satan is that God knows the end of the story. He knows the end of what's going to happen. And he knows what's going to, he's going to accomplish it. And he's going to understand, he understands the end of it all. Satan doesn't. See, that, that's the difference between omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence that Satan can't even fathom. God alone has that. He knows all things. Satan doesn't know. All he knows is that he gets to mess with David. And all the promises went through David, didn't they? Going all the way back to Genesis. They all came through David. And through the line of David would come the Messiah. Satan was just like, just let me at him. I'm going to rip his head off. That was Satan's attitude. And God's like, um, you can do this, but you can only do that much. And Satan, his hatred is so great, he's like, I don't care what it is, just let me at him. See, that's the heart of the devil. He doesn't care. He just wants to destroy. That's who he is. He's the father of lies. He's a destroyer. He's a bad one. Remember in the Bible? He's a destroyer. He's a deceiver. And we see this satanic dynamic as well in the, in the life of Job. Remember when uh, in Job chapter 1, there was a day when the sons of uh, God came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan also came among them. And remember, um, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and an upright man who fears God and shuns evil? And Satan said, Yeah, does, jo does Job, does Job, does Job, Job. Everybody got a job? Yeah, here we go. So does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not set a hedge around him, around his household, around all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, his possessions, and you can almost see Satan's temperature going up. You know, you've done all this, you've increased his possessions, but now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power so there's the permission. There's the permission. He had to go to God. God says, okay, you can do that, but notice the, the stipulation. Here's what you can't do. All that, he, the, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So you can take away his wife, his kids. You can take away his lands and his possessions, but you cannot and will not touch him physically. And Satan's like, that's fine with me. So do you see? And you can see this also in chapter 2. We're not going to go into chapter 2, but he does the same thing, except this time he allows sickness to come upon Job. And Job, at the end of it all, recovered twice as much, and he knew God better than he ever did. So God knew this. Satan didn't know that. He was just happy to, to pounce on Job and beat him. And that's literally what he did. He just pounced on him and beat him. And God allowed it. But God knew the end of the story. He also knows David's story. And so he allows this to happen. So verse 2, So David said to Joab and to the leaders of the people, Go number the Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. And Joab answered, May the Lord make his people a hundred times more than they are. But my lord the king, are they not all my lord's servants? Why then does my lord require this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt in Israel? And, and there was a time... I mean, this was not something David was supposed to do, but there was a time in Israel's history that Moses took a census. But there's a big difference of what Moses did and what David is now doing. God told Moses, 
It's recorded for us in Numbers chapter 1. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses. And the, notice the, the reason behind it here. And I'm, it's a very short thing here. And this is Numbers 1, verse, Numbers 1, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tabernacle of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel by their families, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male individually, from 20 years old and above, all who are able to go to war in Israel. You and Aaron shall number them by their armies." So there was a purpose in this census initially. But this thing that David wants to do, is not, it wasn't directed by God, but rather it was a, a pride, we believe, building up in the heart of David. Now that his kingdom is secure, his military is well established, Joab, his nephew, and his other two nephews are involved in his cabinet, and everything is going wonderfully, and the, and the military is growing and becoming more formidable. But two things are remarkable here. Number one, David should have been and had been, um, David should have been more discerning. I'm sorry, David should have been and had been more discerning in times past concerning his own sin issues. That is true. He had been discerning over his own, over his own sin issues. And why he didn't catch this himself is kind of remarkable. But the second thing is his nephew Joab was a bloodthirsty and vengeful man, as we looked at that, remember, in, in 2 Samuel. But now even Joab, this bloodthirsty general of his, and his, uh, his nephew, he's the one crying foul on this plan. And that's really unusual, because usually it's David restraining Joab from cutting somebody's head off. But now Joab is going, David, what you're doing is wrong. Even he suspected that it was David's pride getting the better of him. But by this time, David's kingdom, again, was very well established. And David let this go to his head, and it appears that he wanted to know his strength in numbers. It wasn't good enough just to see the army and to have a, a, an understanding, but now he wanted the numbers. You know, He wanted the Excel spreadsheet texted to him. Let's see all the tribes. I want to look at them. Let's just massage those numbers a little bit and look at them. But unfortunately, this is the same old story for most people. What does it tell us in Proverbs 16.8? A very familiar passage, right? Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. This was not David's finer moment. And I am really glad that David's faults are shown to us because David is in glory right now. He's in heaven. But he was a forgiven man. And yes, he, he had a couple of really blots on his record, but the Lord forgave him. And David didn't continue in those things. Once he came across the, the guilt of his sin, he confessed it, he was changed, God forgave him, he went on, and he wrote some of the most beautiful psalms. And had he not gone through those deep, dark areas in his life, I mean, think about what would have happened. None of us guys would have had Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 where it talks about sexual sin. Or ladies, for that matter, you know. Some of those psalms wouldn't have been written had David not gone through, perhaps, those deep, dark waters of, of being busted and then feeling like his... The vitality of his life which is shriveling up. And for people who go through that now, they can read that psalm and go, oh my gosh, that's exactly what I feel. And God, if you can forgive him, you can forgive me. And so Romans 8.28, right? All things work together for the good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Even our horrible moments in our life, God can turn around and use those things. It would have been far better for him not to have done them, but he can use them and use them for instruction for others, for not only recognizing it in yourself, your humanity, but then to turn it around and know that you're forgiven and that you're heaven-bound. I mean, to be able to turn that around and put a positive spin on it is a wonderful thing. But you'd think that after years and years of seeing this, in others and in the history that man would learn something about himself. But unfortunately, right, we get comfortable, we get complacent, we get lazy, especially as David is, is getting on in his ministry or in his uh, tenure as king. And this is why God warns us, doesn't he? 
It's a, it's a proverb, chapter 4, verse 23. What does it tell us? To keep, keep your heart with all diligence. And this was something that David could have spent some more time looking at within himself because he, he you know, keep your heart, literally guard your heart with all diligence for out of it spring forth the issues of life. Yes, the issues of greed, the issues of lust, the issues of pride, all these things. And the Bible tells us to guard our hearts with all diligence. To guard it. And then the indictment that God gives us even of our old nature, right? In Jeremiah 17, verse 9, what does it tell us? The heart is deceitful above all things. Did you know that your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked? That's true. See, some churches don't really tell you that. They come and say, oh, you, you guys are beautiful. I mean, you are a beautiful people. Don't get me wrong. But you've got a you know, sinful heart. We all have sinful hearts, right? And we've got to tell the truth because the Bible is the truth. God's word is the truth, and we must not slack, be slack from it. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And I love Jeremiah says, oh, who can know it? And then the very next verse, God answers with the answer. What does he say? Who can know it? And God says, I, the Lord, I am the one who searched the heart. I test the mind, even to give everyone according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Aren't you glad that God is the one doing it and not man? I'd rather fall into the hand of God because if you've got a humble heart and a broken heart, you're in a good place. If your heart is willing to be changed like David's was, even though the sin had happened, even though his sin with Bathsheba, even killing her husband, if your heart was like truly broken, a broken, what is it? You know, um, a broken and contrite heart, Lord, you will not despise. And David knew that. He knew that. He could rest upon the Lord and know it. And so can you. Verse 4, nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. So David's just being a, not being very wise at this moment. And Joab's trying to argue with him, because, but because he's the general of the army and not the king, he's got to do what the king says. So, therefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. And Second um, Samuel 24 tells us that about this time, that this census began in the southeastern part of Israel, east of the Jordan, and then went north and then crossing over the Jordan, going west towards Sidon, which is on the coast, and then finally going south all the way down to the northern parts of Israel around Beersheba. And so, verse 5, Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to David, and all Israel had 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and Judah had 470,000 men who drew the sword. But he did not count Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. And the thing is, the number would have been greater, but Joab did not do what David had said. He didn't do what David had said. This number could have been much greater if the reality of it was really known. But Joab said, you know what, I'm not going to give him the satisfaction of knowing the true number. Because what he's doing is wrong. <laughs> And, and, and he had that attitude. And the amount of time it took them to do this, Second Samuel 24, verse 8, tells us that it took nearly 10 months to do this. Think about this. This is your general and a handful of guys going around Israel counting people. Isn't there something better for the general of the army, the captain of the guard? Isn't there something better for him to do than to count people and take a census? What happens if the Philistines rose up again? Well, I guess we've got to have, you know, the second string captain of the guard. You know, my, my, my real captain's out counting people. Wasn't very forward thinking. Now there's, um, let's go on to verse 7. There's a lot of things here that I could be sharing, but let's just go to verse 7. So God was displeased with this thing, and therefore he struck, notice, he was displeased with what David did, but who did he strike? He struck Israel. God was displeased that David was relying more on his military might than he was on God's providence, on God's protection. 
And God was jealous for Israel, wasn't he? He was jealous for their affection. He was jealous to have their heart. And this doesn't mean that God was insecure because God was doing well by himself before he created man. He didn't need man. But there's something about God that wanted to have fellowship with someone that he created and someone that he gave the opportunity to choose. Isn't that what love really is? Is when you are given the ability to choose. That's what we do when we choose a mate, when we're, when we're going through this courting period of, of our life or when we desire to be married. You know, we can't force someone to love us. We talk with them, we, we, we go out, we walk, and we go out to dinner, we have these things, and pretty soon there's a mutual love. You can't force that. And that's the kind of relationship that God wants with us. He doesn't make us do anything. He'd much rather have you come of your own volition because that's what love is. Love is a choice, and then love then is a commitment beyond that, right? But God was jealous for his people. And why? Because he knows what's best for them. And when they turn away from his ways and they, and they sin, they bring upon themselves what? God's chastening and even his judgment. And that's why God is jealous for us, because he knows what's best for us. We don't know what's best. We think we do, but we're short-sighted. And, and, and if you don't have the Spirit of God in you, all you've got to go on is this old nature. And the old nature is a stubborn rebel. It thinks it knows best. Well, I've been around this planet for 89 years, or I've been around for 60 or 70 years. I've been around the block a few times. I know how this works. I can do it myself. Thank you, God. But no thanks. And God is like, okay. Mr. Hotshot, if you think you know what to do, I'm going to allow you to run the course. I'll see you at the end of the line when you're on your face weeping before me, and I'll be glad to pick you up again. And maybe then you'll listen, son, daughter. <laughs> and unfortunately, it's like that for most people. They've got to run their race. They've got to get it out of their system. And then finally, they wake up on the floor with vomit all around them from the night they had before the drunken boozer that they were. And they come to the end of themselves and they cry out to God and he answers. But God's heart is always, isn't it? It's always to encourage holiness. It's always to encourage godliness to the end that we might live and not die and spend eternity from him. Doesn't it tell us in Exodus? This was actually this, in the second commandment. You know, he says, For I am the Lord your God, I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the third and the fourth generations to those, of those who hate me. He's a jealous God, but not jealous like a husband and a wife. No, God knows what's best for us. And he knows what's best for David. And all the laws that we have in our books and our land came from the Bible, came from Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. They all came from there. Do you realize that? Our justice system came from the Bible. Verse 8, so David said to God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing, but now I pray, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And this is uh, the best thing that we can do when we sin, and that is to confess it immediately. What does 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, 9, and 10, what does it tell us? That if we confess, I say this verse a lot because it's so important that we get this. If we sin, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful to forgive us and then to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, that is a promise of God. He asks us to confess it, and then he's faithful to forgive and to cleanse. But we have to do our part as well, right? And it's an easy one. He's the one who does all the hard part. He forgives us and then cleanses us. And that's what David did. He confessed. Wise man. You know, you can't fool God. I mean, has anybody tried to fool God? You know, you, you do something. Maybe you're involved in something right now where you think nobody sees but God. And he's like, yeah, I see it. And I'm not pleased with it. It's better to come to him tonight before you put your head on the pillow and just bring it to him and say, Lord, I know what I've done, what I'm doing. I'm playing with fire. And he's like, yes, you are. You're playing with fire. 
And only in my grace am I giving you the space to repent. Will you turn from it and be healed from it? Are you willing to do it? And when I, when I read this verse, it sounds an awful like David's response when he sinned against Bathsheba and murdered Uriah. You know, and and that, that's a good thing. But in, in both cases, there were consequences, right? In the first case with Bathsheba and killing Uriah, David and Bathsheba lost their firstborn son. And secondly, because of this, the sword would not depart from his house. And now in this case, not David himself, but 70,000 men of Israel are going to die. Now granted, there was sin in the country as well, and there was sin in David, but David brought this upon them. And 70,000 men of Israel died. And isn't it, doesn't it bring to truth the, what Romans 6.23 tells us? What does it tell us? The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin. That's what I get because of sin. I sin, this is what I get for a wage. I get death. Now, it may not be death immediately, but it's, it's killing you. Your, your, your heart is filled with guilt. Your life is a mess. And you're continuing, continuing, and you're slowly dying inside, just like David did, until finally, a year after his sin with Bathsheba, he finally cracks like an egg. And Nathan says, David, you're not going to die, even though you deserve to die. God has forgiven you, but you've given great occasion to the enemies to blaspheme your God. And the sword won't depart from your house, David. That's the consequence. But now this consequence, 70,000 people die. You know, there's always a consequence for sin, and sometimes... Others indirectly or directly suffer because of it. And let me just give you a, a, an example. A father may be an alcoholic. And because he spends all of his money that he should be giving to the family, he spends it all on booze. And now his wife and his family don't have adequate money for groceries and money to put, pay for the rent. And so who suffers now? The family. The family suffers because of the father's alcoholism. And you plug in whatever sin you want, it, 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 it hurts other people. And so we're never in a vacuum when we sin. It always affects other people. Then the Lord spoke to David, verse 9, uh, spoke to Gad, excuse me, David's seer, or his prophet. That's what they were called, um, that's what they're called now, but back at that time they were called seers. And he said to him, go and tell David, saying, thus says the Lord, I will offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself that I may do it to you. And so Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, choose for yourself. Notice, either three years of famine, three months to be defeated by your foes with the sword of your enemies overtaking you, or else three days the sword of the Lord, the plague in the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now consider what, I, what answer I should take back to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I'm in a great strait. I'm in a great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. So the Lord sent a plague among Israel, upon Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. 70,000 men. A couple of things here. It doesn't seem fair, does it, that God would kill others, but not David. It doesn't seem fair. It makes you think, well, why didn't you just chasten David for this sin? David would be chastened through this ordeal, there's no doubt, but why did he allow the plague to kill others? We don't know this for sure, but it is possible that the people of Israel at this time were also, they too were also putting their trust in David's strength in his military rather than putting their trust in the Lord. It's possible. The, the Bible doesn't really tell us, but it intimates that they were resting David and the people more on David's strength in military. He was renowned. He was a great military man. But isn't it interesting also that God judged the thing that David put his confidence in? As a result of this plague, there'd be now even less of his army, of these men, to put their confidence in, wouldn't there? 70,000 men are now gone that used to be part of it. And God would diminish what God, excuse me, God would diminish what David had put his trust in. 
And sometimes God will do that. He will give you the desires of your heart, but send leanness to your soul. Remember that in the desert? He gave them the desires of their heart, but sent leanness to their soul. Is it possible that David's army was beginning to be an idol to him? Or maybe was it an idol to him? Whatever it was to him, his attitude was getting unhealthy. And God, in his grace and mercy, said, David, I can't let you go on like this. I must deal with this. God had to deal with it. And David, listen to this, being a shepherd as David was, he was wounded by this very deeply, as we will see by his response in verse 17. Again, when we sin, it's not just about us, uh, you know, uh, about us and God, because our sins affect everyone around us. Our sin may diminish the joy and the blessing in our home. When we are engaging in sin and dominated by sin, what happens as a result of that? The light kind of goes out. It's not quite as bright. Our our joy and our blessing in our home and and that that affects our closest relationships of people that are around us. And when we sin, and especially if we continue in it, we are much less of that source of light and blessing and we defraud those around us. We defraud those around us of being a conduit of God's love and grace. Yes, that's what sin does. It affects us, and now we are not able, when we come into these doors, if we are riddled with sin, think of that. God wants to use you to bless somebody else here tonight, but if I come in with a bunch of stuff in my heart that I've been engaging in, and I haven't repented, I haven't turned from them, I'm basically cutting off the light source from within me, and I'm robbing the church. My fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm robbing them because I'm no longer willing to be a light because I feel so guilty inside. And I just shut my mouth and I just sit and I listen. But there's no interaction. I don't say, hey, brother, you know, good to see you. How is your, how's your wife doing, you know, after the stroke, you know? Can I pray for you? There's none of that happening because you're so guilty and you know it. And so you just sit there with your Bible closed on your lap. No light shining through you. And all we have to do is confess and turn from it. God wants to use you and I and the church in these days. Because listen, there's not going to come any help from anywhere else. Do you realize that? Not from the government. Not from the U.S. government. Not from any government. There's no government on the earth that can do what God can do through you when you are a pure vessel that he can use. He'd much rather use you, and he did it with 12 men. He changed the world with 12 men. The world got turned right side up from 12 men. You and I are here because of those 12 men. From Paul the Apostle going out and others, countless others going out, and we are the beneficiaries of that. So let, take sin and crucify it in your life. Don't let anything have dominion over you. Just put it away from you and let God use you. Because isn't there something true when you, when you confess it and you, your, your account is straight with God at night that when you wake up in the morning, you feel clean inside and you feel like you've, you've got it all out with the Lord and he's forgiven you. Now go on. Don't, don't beat yourself up. What, a righteous man falls seven times and he gets up, Right? He doesn't let the devil beat him over the head. He certainly, don't listen to the voice in your own head saying, you're a no good nothing. And the devil's going, yes, you're a no good nothing. And God says, yeah, but you're one of mine. And I love you. And I got a better plan for your life. Are you willing? Right? And notice that when David wanted God to make the decision, rather than David choosing, it was over quickly in three days as opposed to the other options, which would have been drawn out for days or weeks, and it would have been much worse. And, and, and David was just like, I want to fall into the hand of God. What a great thing to do. And notice verse 15, And God sent an angel to Jerusalem to, to destroy it. And um, now it was getting really personal to David as the angel was beginning to destroy those in Jerusalem. Now, And as he was destroying, it says, the Lord looked and relented of the disaster and said to the angel who was destroying, it is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord stood beside the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. 
Ornan the Jebusite. So this threshing floor that is being spoken of, this was the Jebusite city of, of David before the Temple Mount was built, before Solomon's Temple was built up here. But this rate here in the south is called Zion. And this is where David's palace ultimately would be. And then there's this place called the Ophel, which is right in here, which is basically just like a landfill. But it's right up here on the top of Mount Moriah, this threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. This is where um, uh, Jewish tradition maintains that David's altar was built there around 980 B.C. on the same place that Abraham had erected his altar in preparation for the sacrifice of Isaac before God intervened. Same place. On that temple mount was where Abraham offered Isaac. And then it was the angel of God who was destroying. He stood right over that place and David built an altar there. He made sacrifices. God stayed the plague. And it was that time that David says, this is the place we're going to build an altar for good right here. When my son builds his temple, there's going to be the altar right there in that same spot. And sure enough, it happened. And then David, verse 16, he lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, having in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. And so David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, just in, in, in humility and brokenness and mourning, they fell on their faces. And David said to God, Was it not I who commanded the people to be numbered? I am the one who has sinned and done evil indeed. Notice the shepherd's heart of David here. This is so incredibly wonderful. Verse 17, and he says, But these sheep, what have they done? And that's the right answer, David. That's the right heart, David. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, O Lord my God, be against me and my father's house. It was already against his father's house from Bathsheba, right? But now bring it even more upon me, Lord, but leave these sheep alone. Against me and my father's house, but not against your people, that they should be plagued. And again, what a wonderful shepherd's heart David had. And this judgment was very difficult for David because he was a shepherd. Because it took many lives. These are the sheep, God's sheep. These were the people he was supposed to tend. And he remembered the days when he was out in the field tending his father's sheep. And now he had a lot more sheep to tend. And they're getting slaughtered by the wolf, in a sense. Except it was God's hand. And he's like, Lord, Come against me, but leave these people alone. And therefore, verse 18, the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. So David went up at the word of Gad, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan turned and he saw the angel and his four sons who were with him. They hid themselves, but Ornan, or his name is Aruna, as it tells us in 2 Samuel, 24, he continued threshing wheat. So David came to Ornan, and Ornan looked, and he saw David coming, and he went out from the threshing floor, and notice, he bowed before David with his face to the ground, and then David said to Ornan, take it to yourself, and let my lord the king do what is good in his eyes. Look, I, have, I also give you the oxen for the burnt offerings, the threshing implements for the wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I give it all. Notice this Jebusite man willing to give up the land and the, and the, the cattle that he had and the, and the implements. David, I give it all to you. <laughs> My king, I give it all to you. And David, I, I can imagine the tears are probably coming down his eyes and he's being convicted big time. He's like, oh my goodness, look at the worship of this man. David knew what worship was. Ornan was willing to give all of this to David. What sacrifice? And then verse 24, the king said to Ornan, no, and, uh, and put a star by this verse 24. This is huge. Perhaps one of the most important verses in this passage. King David said to Ornan, no, but I will surely buy it for the full price. I can't accept you giving it to me. Uh, uh, Aruna, you've got a great and wonderful heart, and I am so thankful for that heart. But I can't do it. 
For I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings with that which costs me nothing. And see, folks, this is what sacrifice is about. This is what worship is about. I remember I used this same image when we were in Star Zagora for the worship conference. Remember that? It was one of the first things I posted up here because it had nothing to do about music. It's just part of it. But worship, the foundation of real worship is sacrifice. Now, sometimes I can sing and I might not feel like it. And yes, it is a sacrifice of praise. But at the foundation of real worship is something that we don't like. And it's sacrifice. This painting by Francisco de Zerberin, it's called Agnus Dei, which is Latin for Lamb of God. A lamb right before it's about ready to have its throat slit and the blood emptied out. And then for it to be flayed and, and, and taken into parts. And some of the, the, the priests would eat and other parts of it would be put on the altar for an offering. And the greatest acts of worship in the Bible were around sacrifice. Remember in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham, he offered his only son, Isaac, whom the promise came through. God told him that his seed, the Messiah, would come through Isaac. But then God told him, now take your son, your only son, and take him up on the Mount Moriah. Yes, the same place we're looking at right now. On top of Mount Moriah, and I want you to offer him there. And, and he knew that it was wrong. God didn't require a human sacrifice, but he knew the voice of God. And he says, well, God, you've got a problem because you've told me, you've given me a promise about my seed and about my son, and if I offer him, then you've got to raise him up from the dead. And God's going, well, let's see what you got. <laughs> and so he does. He raises that knife, and just at the moment... When he's about ready to plunge that knife into his son's chest, the Lord says, okay, Abraham, enough. And he put a, sack, a substitute. In the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. The Lord himself will be the sacrifice. And who is the Lord himself? It's Jesus Christ, right? So it was sacrifice. That worship on that mountain by Abraham offering a son. What a huge statement that is. And it challenges us today, doesn't it? Who would offer their son or their daughter on the altar if God really, if you knew it was God? I mean, beyond a shadow of a doubt. And he said, this is what I need you to do in worship of me. i got to be honest. I would probably say, oh, oh, no. I don't even know what I would do. I'd say, can you take me instead? Well, that's the easy way out, Rob. I want you to be a living sacrifice, right? But think about even Mary of Bethany when she came and offered before Jesus was crucified, before he was arrested and crucified. What did she do? She came into the house there in Bethany. It's recorded for us in Matthew 26. She poured this amazing uh, liquid, nard or whatever, a very costly ointment, a, a year's worth of wages to, for this stuff, and she poured it over Jesus. And Judas had a fit. We could have sold that and give money to the poor. And Jesus said, Assuredly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached, what she has done will be also told as a memorial to her because she did it. She poured it out for my burial. And I'm not with you always. Everyone else is, but not me. What she did was an amazing, extravagant worship. That's something to think about, isn't it? Because I often think about how easy it is. Sometimes, sometimes. There are certain parts of worship that are easier than others. Singing is relatively easy, unless you're like Sarah and myself, and yourself as well. You come from a job, you come from a, maybe a home, you just had an argument or whatever, and you come in here and you're going to sing to God? Are you kidding I'm still angry about what happened at work, about what happened at home. And God said, well, can you put that aside and just sing and worship me? Can you do that, Rob? Am I not worthy of that? And then I'm like, oh, can I just go in the corner and cry in the fetal position, Lord? And he's like, no, stand and worship me because I'm worthy. Simply because of that. And here's the secret, isn't it? 
When we don't feel like worshiping in song, and this, that's the easy part, I think. When we don't feel like it, and then we, we step out and we do it. We just start getting our heart and our mouth going. By the end of this, our 20 minutes or half hour in worship, by the end, you're like, okay, I'm there. And the Lord's like, see how easy that was? Just, just open your mouth. Open your mouth. Raise your hands. Just do it. I'm worthy, God says. Regardless of how you feel about it. Regardless of the form of the worship, whether I got one person with a guitar or whether I got a stage full of instruments, whether I got an orchestra up here, doesn't, doesn't matter, it shouldn't matter. That's what worship is, when we can do that. We can worship him with somebody up here with a broken ukulele with one string playing Amazing Grace on one string. Right? We should be able, can we? Would we? But obviously the greatest act of worship was the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, willingly taking upon, our, upon himself our sin. <laughs> he willingly did it. And God the Father said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. He made his soul an offering for sin, as it tells us in Isaiah 53, verse 10. And, and Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Oh, hallelujah. Wasn't that awesome? Awesome, awesome. So in verse 25, So David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the place. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offering and offered, excuse me, burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord, called on Jehovah, called on Yahweh. And he answered him from heaven, notice, by fire on the altar of burnt offering. And so the Lord commanded the angel and he returned his sword to its sheath. He put it back. You know, people like the idea that God is merciful. And anybody here, raise your hand if you like the fact that God is merciful. <laughs> I do. I love that fact. And that is true. God is merciful. But there comes a time when he drops the hammer. And God is a God of vengeance and a God of war. And folks, that's a side of God that you and I, if you're a believer in Christ, you'll never see that side of God. But it exists. And it is horrible. Let me tell you, your worst foe is nothing like God and his wrath. There is no one like that. But for those of us who are in Christ, we'll never see that side of his wrath. For God has not appointed us to wrath, right? Doesn't that tell us in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9? But to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. That's his will for you and I that he would not, we would not incur his wrath. And we won't because the wrath has already been placed upon his son, upon the Lamb of God who was sacrificed in our place. That is so, that's why we worship him. That's why we love him. Is there anybody here who doesn't love him? I mean, think about it. I mean, just let your heart get carried away with that. That's how much he loves us. And notice verse 28. We're getting close. At that time when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor. Notice, here's when he saw that God answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. It was such a big deal, David's like, this is where we're going to keep the altar because this is where it all came down and I am tired of fighting against this nature of mine. I'm giving it all right now. I'm going to give it up and I'm going to have this altar right here. It's going to, this is where it's going to be, folks. God answered here, and this is where it ends, right here. And we don't have anything recorded of David messing up like this ever again. He, he, I, I love that man. I can't wait to see him. Because I can relate to him in a lot of ways. And I admire a lot of things that I don't see in myself. That God is working. He's working in you and me both. For the tabernacle, verse 29, of the Lord and the altar of the burnt offering, which Moses had made in the wilderness, were at that time at the high place in Gibeon. Remember that when David took over, when he became king, remember what he did? He brought the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant back in, 
And David built a tabernacle right there in Zion for the tabernacle. But what about the rest of the elements of the tabernacle that went through the desert with Moses? Well, that was up in Gibeon, a handful of miles away. Yeah, that original tabernacle was still there, was still with the offer, the, the altar and the, um, the altar of incense and the altar of you know, showbread or the showbread and the menorah. But that tabernacle didn't have the Ark of the Covenant because it was with David in Jerusalem. And so there were two separate sets of people, of, of, of Levites, that were tending to both of these things at the same time. But David, verse 30, could not go before it. Meaning he couldn't go to Gibeon, to the altar that, that was there at, at Gibeon, to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. David certainly remembered, didn't he? And we'll close with this. He remembered that moment when he first brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. You remember what happened? His first attempt? You know, they put it on this fancy new cart, you know, it had Mercedes-Benz logo on the back of the cart, and he drove this in. Yeah, this is good, man, we got this thing going. And, he's, and, and everybody's dancing, and the Philistines did it, so why can't we? And so he's got this thing, and the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah put his hand against the ark to keep it from falling over, and the Lord killed him on the spot. And it says in 2 Samuel 6, verse 9, that David was afraid of the Lord that day. He was afraid of the Lord that day. He's like, I, I, I just don't get it. And then he finally did get it. Oh, it's because we weren't supposed to do it that way. God's like, yeah, I let those guys, those guys are ignorant, but you guys weren't. You knew better, and yet you did it anyway. And so David... He was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. So he didn't go and inquire at the altar in Gibeon. He made that one right there, and it stayed there, that altar. In fact, Solomon would build his temple there. The altar would be there, and it would be there until 70 AD. Even after many temples had come and gone, Finally, Herod's temple gets sacked by the, you know, the Romans in 70 AD, totally destroys the whole thing. But I love David's heart. And what did he say? No, but I will surely buy it for the full price. For I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings with that which costs me nothing. You know, as you look at this lamb on the screen, you know, that cost somebody something. It was supposed to be the best. The firstling of the flock, no blemish. Not just a lamb that you could, that had full of bugs and, you know, the, the fur was all, you know, matted and muddied and everything. No, they would examine these animals. And if it was good, it had to be the best. And see, sometimes I don't give the Lord my best. And I'm not here asking for money, okay? So don't worry about that. But we got to think about that. When I give him, when I, when I offer myself to him, give him the first fruits of your life. And if that first fruits of your life is working a full-time job, then serve him there. Don't think that that's a secular pursuit, and then when you come here, it's a holy thing. No, everywhere you go is holy. And you serve him. And when you have the opportune moments, when you have, and you've got to be careful, you've got to be careful, but you've got to do it. Be a light where you're at. And don't allow your life to be segregated, but worship God in everything you do. In everything you do, worship him of your first fruits of your strength. Do it as unto him. Give him the very best of what you've got. And if that best is being a, a carpenter and you're swinging a hammer and nails, working for some other company, then you go there every day at the right time when everyone is on time and you work hard and you make it the very best structure you've ever made every single day. And you do it not because of your boss. You do it because of the Lord. And people are going to take notice and they're going to go, man, what is it about you? All these other guys are taking, you know, 20-minute breaks after working for a half hour, and you're pulling, putting in a full hour, and you're doing better work than them, and you're getting twice as much done. What is it with you, man? Well, it's because of Christ. This is what he expects of me, and I'm doing it for him. And if I can do it for him, my boss is going to be very happy. You see? And that's our worship. 
We can worship him everywhere in anything. And pray to God that if you have to have a double bypass, that your, that your doctor is thinking the same thing. I'm going to do the very best today. This is going to be the best heart transplant. This is going to be the best bypass I've ever done, and I'm going to do it for God. He's gifted these hands, and this is what I'm going to do. Amen? Let's stand and pray. <laughs> Lord, we just thank you for this, uh, this passage, and it is uh, it, it, it wounds us, Lord, and it makes me evaluate sometimes the slovenly way in which I do things. It challenges me in my slothfulness, in my lack of uh, care. And Lord, I ask for your forgiveness for that. Lord, you truly are worthy of more than I'm giving you. And if there's anybody in this room that feels the same way, Lord, just touch our hearts tonight and help us not to walk out of here condemned, but rather... Just come to your feet, either now or after the service or tonight before our head hits the pillow and just be honest and, and let you do the work. So do that work in us, Lord. We ask it in your precious name. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless.